Our Bible, <coughs> our Bible reading comes from First uh, Peter chapter two, verses nine to twelve. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bert. Well, I wonder if you've seen it on the news, uh, when a, a celebrity or a politician or a criminal walks out of a building and suddenly they are swarmed by reporters and by a crowd that presses in on them, trying to jostle them, yelling questions at them, insulting them. Uh, you see it on the news every now and again. It's always interesting to see how people respond to that. Uh, some people hide under their coats or their umbrellas and they just rush for the car as quickly as possible and they don't say anything. Uh, all they want to do is hide. Others do quite the opposite. Uh, they get riled up, they go on the offensive, they advance on the crowd, they yell a few choice words. Uh, still others, uh, maybe they, they stop in front of a microphone and they look down the barrel of a camera and they calmly plead their cause and make a statement. Uh, these days, it's actually common for businesses and organizations to do media training. Uh, they're coaching people on how to handle those situations, on, on when to speak to the press, on what you should and shouldn't say. Uh, you've got to plan ahead so that when you're in that high-pressure situation, you know how to respond and you don't accidentally give your organization a bad name. Now, for those of us who are Christians here today, I think we actually need help in this area too. Because we live in a society that is increasingly uh, anti-Christian. It's a society that doesn't say, oh, wow, that's great, you're a Christian. Maybe that was the case a few generations ago when Christians were often seen as the good guys in society. But then things started changing. Uh, Christians went from being the good guys to just being one of the guys. Uh, Christianity became one option among many. People would say, oh, fair enough. Yeah, no, if you want to be a Christian, go for it. Good for you. That, you do you. But today, things have changed again. Uh, in his book called Being the Bad Guys, Steve McAlpine argues that Christians today are now seen as the bad guys in society. We're actually the problem. Uh, today, being a Christian can involve being viewed with suspicion, uh, being labelled perhaps as a bigot or a homophobe, uh, and increasingly finding ourselves on the outs in a workplace 
or in school or wherever you are. And so we need wisdom, don't we, to know how to respond to this. We need practical advice on how we live as Christians in a society like this. And that's actually exactly what Peter wants to talk to us about today. As we come to our passage uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we're coming to a new section in the book of 1 Peter. We're actually coming to the heart of the book. This is sort of going to be the theme of the next few chapters. Now, if you've been here over the past few weeks, you'll remember... uh, Peter's been talking to us about this new identity we have as Christians, this new identity as God's precious people. We've been chosen by God. We've been born again in Jesus. Uh, We are headed for heaven. We've been set apart for God, called out of the world to be holy, uh, to be God's people, His precious possession who live for His glory. That's that's where we've been the last few weeks. But now Peter is shifting gears and he's asking the question, well, how does that identity as God's people, how does that affect how we live in the world? Uh, It's as if the first part of 1 Peter has been us in a showroom admiring a brand new four-wheel drive. Uh, We've looked under the hood and we've seen uh, its power. Uh, We've admired its many features and its gadgets. We all agree, yep, it's a ripper of a car. But now the question is, well, what happens when you take it out of the showroom and and you go off-road with it? Because as Christians, we don't live in the showroom, do we? We live off-road. We live in the wilderness. And Peter wants to prepare us for that. Imagine how important this would have been for Peter's first readers Imagine if you were the follower of this brand new religion called Christianity, a strange new religion which which had such different morals and values to the Greek-Roman society around you. Peter thinks that's a really important issue. He wants to ask, is there some way that these Christians could live so that the unbelievers around them might actually be attracted to to this strange new religion. That's what we're going to be focusing on in the next few chapters as we get into the heart of the book. There's going to be lots of practical advice, but all of it flows out of verses 11 and 12. It's like the big umbrella, the key idea, and here it is. In a world of unbelievers who don't love God, Christians need to live really good lives. It's pretty simple actually, isn't it? We need to live lives that look different, but also are very attractive. Lives that are weird, but wonderful at the same time. How do we do that? Uh, This morning, Peter's going to give us three things in these verses. He's going to give us something to avoid, uh, something to do, and something to aim for. Something to avoid, something to do, something to aim for. Let's, Let's look at each of these together. First of all, something to avoid. Verse 11, uh, have a look there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Um, can you hear the warmth and the urgency in Peter's voice? Dear friends, beloved I I urge you, please, 
don't give in to your sinful desires. What are these sinful desires? Well, they're all the, the sinful passions and desires that live in us, all those things that are opposite to this new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember this amazing life? Been born again, we're, we're God's chosen people, but Peter knows that doesn't mean that everything is easy now. Christians still struggle every day with sinful desires, and don't we know it? And if this was the Apostle Paul, he would probably be talking about put off the old self, put on the new self. You see, there is a tug of war happening in the life of every Christian. God is calling us one way, but our sinful desires are dragging us back the other way. As Christians, our sins have been forgiven and the power, the enslaving power of sin in our lives has been broken, but we still struggle with the sinful nature that continues to live in us. God says, hey, you're foreigners and exiles in the world now. You belong to me. You don't belong to the world anymore. And our sinful nature say, oh, but the world isn't that bad, is it? A little bit of sins, not that big a deal, is it? Don't we feel that pull all the time? Just the pull to settle down in the world. Not, not necessarily the pull to be extremely wicked. Just to stop being foreigners. Just to fit in, just to get comfy here. And Peter says, don't be fooled. Those desires, they're actually waging war Against your soul, he says. War is strong language. You only have to look at Ukraine to know that. It is the language of army commanders meeting to plan and to scheme. It's the language of troops lined up in formation, armed to the teeth, determined to destroy you. Christians, we are at war, not with the unbelievers around us, but with our own sinful desires. What, what, what types of desires? Well, for sure, it includes the big ticket items of sexual immorality and greed, but it also includes many other desires that are much more subtle and therefore much more dangerous. Desires that, as Christians, we often like to overlook. Desires that Jerry Bridges would call respectable sins, things like selfishness, things like pride, wanting to be the center of attention, wanting to be important, wanting to be noticed. It might be a tendency to just be unthankful, to often be discontent, to be bitter. It might be frustration, always being irritable, on verge of being impatient. It might be lacking self-control and, and indulging yourself. It might be being judgmental of others, or being envious and jealous of them. We all have these sinful desires and they're just, they're just warring against us all the time. They pull us away from God so that we actually stop resembling our Father in heaven. They make us ugly Christians. 
They make us bad witnesses to a watching world. Now, at Riverbank, it's our vision, it's our goal to be serious about outreach and evangelism, isn't it? We're working on that at the moment. We want to reach the lost around us. We want to be a light for Jesus. But if that is our goal, then we need to hear this urgent call from Peter. Dear friends, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires. Because it's not enough to just read organic outreach books and learn how to talk about Jesus. If we want to reach Launceston with the gospel, then every one of us actually need to take a hard look at ourselves, the sin in our own hearts, in my heart, my godless habits that I've made peace with. You know, that hypocrisy and that judgmentalism that just creeps in so easily, always just looking down our nose at at others. But friends, if we are not humbled and broken by the sin in our own lives and amazed at the grace that God has shown us, then how are we ever going to show his compassion to anyone else? So Peter says, fight these sinful desires. Abstain from them. Flee from them. Deprive them of oxygen so that they can't grow, so that they don't ruin your witness as a Christian. Okay, that's where Peter starts. But he doesn't leave it there because Christians don't just follow a list of don'ts, do we? No, the Christian life is a life of beauty. It's a life of goodness, of doing things well, of pursuing excellence. And so after giving us something to avoid, Peter goes on to give us something to do. Something to do. It's there in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Where are we living? Peter says, among the pagans. Among the unbelievers. That's important. Because in verse 9, he just said, we're God's chosen people, set apart for him. But now Peter makes it very clear, that does not mean that we pull out of society, that we withdraw, that we live separately in monasteries or caves or rural communes. No, we are called to live out our faith in public for the whole world to see. How do we do this? Peter says, let your way of life be really, really good. As much as possible, without compromising your faith, live in such a way that unbelievers see your life and think, wow, that is a good life. I like that. That is a good way to live. That's actually unusually good. Now, answering the question, how does that actually look? How do we live like that? Is complex. And Peter's going to talk about it a lot over the next few weeks. We're going to hear him talking about being law-abiding citizens, about being good employees, about being loving husbands and wives. But today, I want to go somewhere else. I want us to think about another example of what this good life looks like. It's an example that comes from some of the first Christians ever. Remember we said before, Christianity was this new religion. It was just starting out. 
Well, it got a lot of people talking. Because it started spreading through the Roman Empire like wildfire, even though these Christians were being persecuted. And there is this old, old document called the Epistle of Diognetus. It was probably written in about 130 AD. And it tries to explain who these new, strange Christians are. Uh, And we're going to read a bit of it now. Something a bit different, I know. But we're just going to slowly read through some of it and, and, and take the chance to compare ourselves to these first Christians. The Christians are distinguished from other men, neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. In other words, they live among the pagans. But, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. So in other words, they live like everyone else. Uh, They've got all these normal customs. And yet at the same time, they've got this method of life which is wonderfully and confessedly striking. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Striking. They have a common table, but not a common bed. How good is that? Generous in hospitality, stingy with your body. They are in the flesh, means the body, but do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. That's powerful. Obey the prescribed laws, but also go above and beyond these laws in their own lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonoured, and yet in their very dishonour, are glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honour. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. And when punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason 
for their hatred. That's a pretty cool document to have been written maybe, maybe like 50, 60 years after this letter from Peter. I think the Christians got it, didn't they? It's an inspiring example. This is what Peter is calling us to do. He, he wants us to ask, do we look different? Do we look different? Do we look good different? In the way that we suffer, uh, in the way that we work for our boss or treat our employees, in the way that we spend money, in the way that we date and get married, in the way that we raise our children, in the way that we throw parties, in the way that we use our weekends, in the way that we forgive, do we look good different? Well, uh, Peter has called us to avoid sinful desires. He's called us to live extremely good lives. But why? What's the aim of all of this? That's the last thing we want to look at this morning. Peter gives us something to aim for. Something to aim for. Read verse 12 with me again. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Did you notice there's a tension here? They accuse us of wrongdoing and yet they see and appreciate our good deeds. I find that interesting. How does that fit together? I'm not too sure, but I, I, it makes me imagine a person who, who's generally pretty anti-Christian. There's probably some things in the Bible that they really don't like. Teaching perhaps on hell or on gender or on abortion or on homosexuality. This person doesn't have much good to say about Christians, those bigoted Christians with their old-fashioned hateful religion. And then one day, they meet their neighbour or their workmate or, or a kid at school or a mum at playgroup. And, and they're stumped. They're confused. They can't figure out how someone could be so different, have such different morals, and yet actually be so nice, so loving, so good. And that's our aim. Riverbank, that is our aim. Our aim is to silence their accusations and win them to God. And it's not going to be easy. Peter knows they'll accuse us, they'll oppose us, they'll insult us. We should expect that. But Peter says, don't give them a leg to stand on. Make sure that when they accuse you, it's ungrounded. When someone on Facebook accuses you of being hateful, don't prove their point for them. Surprise them with your compassion, with your kindness, with your gentleness. I'm not saying that we won't sometimes be offensive. We saw last week, people will stumble over Jesus, over the gospel. There will be Christian truths that offend. And Peter's not saying, well, just lie down and make sure you never cause offense ever. He's not saying you should never have a public voice in the public sphere. He's not saying privatize all your beliefs and never speak about them with anyone. But what Peter wants us to do is ask a really important guiding question. What is our goal? What's my goal in saying this? What's my goal in doing this? 
in the way I live as a Christian, in the way I interact with unbelievers, what am I trying to achieve? Our primary goal is not defending our rights. Our primary goal is not making sure that Christians in Australia are never mistreated and never persecuted. Our primary goal is not to make people more moral or to win them over to our political agenda or into our denomination. No, our primary goal is that they would be saved. That they would see a glimpse of Jesus in the way that we live and they would be drawn to him. So that on the judgment day they won't be condemned to hell. But they will stand firm in the robes of righteousness that only Jesus can provide. And that is our mission. And that is why no Christian should ever walk out of their doors in the morning aimlessly. Remember last week. Peter said in verse 9, God has made us his precious people so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our calling. That's our purpose. It's our goal. And it's our mission because it was his mission. It's our mission because it was the mission and it is the mission of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He came to earth to make God the Father known, didn't he? And think about it. He lived such a good life that though people accused him of wrong, they couldn't deny that he was the most astonishingly righteous person they had ever met. This remarkable goodness characterized every day of his life and it characterized his death when he sacrificed himself on the cross for pagans like you and me so that we could be saved and glorify God on the day he visits us. So let me ask you as, you, as you go out into the week, you're going to be out there tomorrow, what's your aim? I hope that as God's people, our ultimate aim will be to show people a glimpse of Jesus to point to him and how we live, to mirror him, to draw attention to him however we can. And don't just leave it at being good. Whenever possible, use your words as well and say to them, well, it's actually all because of Jesus. It's not, it's not because I'm a good person. I'm actually a sinner, just like everyone. But God is forgiving me and helping me to live this new life for him. I love Peter's optimism in this passage. In the midst of a hostile society, Peter has no doubt God is going to save some people. And we should live with that expectation. Not with despair, not moping around thinking, well, no one wants to buy what I'm selling. Peter wants us to believe we really have the light. We really have hope. We really have truth. We really have what people are looking for. We have something they need and something they want. They just don't know it. He wants us to go out of here this morning with a pep in our step. Believing that we have a life worth living. And we really will have an impact on the world as we live it. I'll finish with this. Uh, I read a testimony this week of a man called Douglas O'Donnell. Uh, and I'll read what he wrote. It was the summer of 1990. 
I had just graduated from high school and I was selected to play basketball in the Prairie State Games, which is kind of an Olympics for Illinois. Most of the guys on the team were typical guys. Uh, we swore a lot, talked disrespectfully and immorally about girls, and as superstar athletes, were full of ourselves. But one guy on the team was noticeably different. His name was Mark Davidson. Mark never swore on or off the court. He only talked and acted respectfully toward girls. He treated everyone on the team, even the water boy, with dignity and kindness. And he was humble, even though he was the best player on the team. In fact, he was voted the best player in the state of Illinois. Mark was a Christian. I knew this by the Bible he kept next to his dorm room bed and from the openness of his conversation, but also and most importantly by his godly behavior and good works. I became a Christian about a year and a half after tasting the salt and seeing the light of Mark Davidson. His behavior made it clear to me as it settled during those months upon my conscience what it meant to follow Jesus. And I hope and pray that that will happen through us too. That through the way we live as Christians, people will get a glimpse of Jesus and they'll be drawn to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we want to live for you. You've called us to such a great such a great task. You've chosen us to be your light, to be your salt, to be your ambassadors into this dark, broken world. We pray that we would not go out to war against this world, but that we would be at war with our own sinful desires. We pray that we would have love and compassion for this world. That we would have the courage and the wisdom to know how to stand for the truth and not compromise. And yet that we would live such good lives that people cannot help but say, that is a good life and I'm intrigued. We pray that through us, Lord, people might see Jesus and that they might glorify you on the day you return. Please forgive us for all the times that we don't do as well in this as we should. Thank you for your forgiveness for your Holy Spirit, and that you send us out again and again, week after week, to try again and to do a little better, and that you promise to use us in all our weakness. Thank you for the optimism of the Bible, for your enthusiasm. Thank you, Lord, that we are already victors in Christ. Help us to go out of here with confidence, living for you and believing, trusting, knowing that you will work through us and you will save all your elect. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.